Welcome to episode 192 of Auto Off Topic. Hello, Brad. We have a guest with us tonight. Yes, we do. And that is Patrick Strong of Model Citizen Diecast. How are you tonight? Hi, guys. I'm doing great. How are you this evening? We're doing pretty well. Andrew answered for me, so I guess I'm good. I assumed you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everything is wonderful. I am also well. I'm excited to have Patrick on. We've been talking about inviting him on for a long time, and just it hasn't worked out timing-wise until now. So here we are. Yeah, thanks um, for having me on. It's uh, yeah, I thought all of a sudden we just had so much free time. I just like it's like yeah, I don't, it's like somebody hit pause. I don't know. Yeah, and also we already had this whole remote thing set up because I was, you know, I had the audacity to move away from the North Shore of Massachusetts area. So we already set up remote, and then when everything had to go remote anyway, we were like, hey, we're, we're good to go, and we can have yeah, guests on anywhere at any time. They don't need to we're be already pretty video. good at it. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, we know how to do it. I don't know if we're good at it or not. <laughs> yeah. There's anyway, that. so we have Patrick on today. Uh, I've known Patrick for a few years. Uh, he runs an online company called Model Citizen Diecast. Um, if anybody is familiar with diecast models, uh, they've probably run across his site. Uh, not the typical uh, American car diecast. He specializes a lot more in foreign car stuff. Not to say he can't get you American car stuff, but he has a lot of cool import stuff. A lot of vintage race cars, um, tons of sports cars from every era. Uh, obviously, we see him at a lot of Radwood shows, so he has a lot of Radwood era cars in his collection to uh, to sell us, and he tempts us at every turn with more and more things that we should buy. I think is the word should buy, right, Patrick? We were encouraging people I, to buy these things. I I kind of prefer must buy, but okay, we'll go okay. with should. I got you. I got you. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Um, Thank you. I will start simply. What got you into Diecast cars. Well, I think that the thing that got me into diecast cars is the thing that gets most people who are diecast enthusiasts into the hobby in the first place. I think it is something that is that we pick up in childhood. Uh, kind of the roots, our common roots as car enthusiasts, the things that we the things that we hold valuable about cars, you know, whether it is the aesthetics of cars or the performance capabilities of cars. Um, and when we're kids, the way that we can engage with that on our own terms is by playing with toy cars. And when I was a little kid, I was monomaniacally focused on toy cars. My entire life, certainly my entire play life was built around toy cars. Uh, if I was playing with any other toy, you know, uh, Brio trains or Lego sets, whatever it was, they were always auxiliary to matchbox and hot wheels cars. I grew up I, in the late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, what was unique for me was that somehow uh, at a very early point in life, I became aware that there is a there's a level of diecast model car that lives above Matchbox and Hot Wheels cars. And as far as I can tell, I picked that up uh, through engagement with Road and Track magazine uh, in the late 70s. They had uh, a semi-regular series called Cars in Scale. And they would feature these really high quality scale model cars from around the world. 
And I had the collector mentality, uh, you know, right from the jump. I, I was a collector, you know, when I came screaming into the world. So I had already by age five accumulated a pretty good collection of little Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars, but I really wanted to get one of these nicer cars. So my, what happened was, uh, when I was five in 1980, I entered uh, an art contest uh, that my dad's company was uh, was participating in, and I won. Uh, many years later, I would find out that that art contest was rigged and that the guy who was judging it was a buddy of my dad's, and I was always going to win. And I know this because I have no discernible artistic talent, so that, <laughs> that's the only possible explanation. So the prize was a $10 gift certificate to this high-end independent toy store in the Dallas area where, where I lived at the time. And I knew exactly what I was going to get. We, we walked through the door and I went directly to a 136 scale candy apple red Corgi Jaguar XJS. And that was, uh, that was my first cherished better quality die cast car. So I guess that's a long, long way of saying that I just always was a diecast guy. I mean, almost literally from birth, I was collecting these model cars. And then as, uh, as I got older, that coincided with uh, some changes in the diecast industry. 118 scale cars became a thing, and I started collecting those when I was nine. And over the years, I kind of went through phases. I collected 118 and 143. I was a very serious Hot Wheels collector for a long time. Uh, and so I just, uh, I had always, I accumulated a, a lot of cars. And at one point when I was a kid, I had this dream that one day I would own a model car shop of my own. And I didn't know that such a shop existed anywhere in the world. I grew up mostly in West Texas. We didn't have anything like that. So uh, fast forward uh, 150 years, um, I was you know, going through a midlife crisis. I'd experienced a bit of a career setback. I was kind of going through a dark place. And this dream of having this model car shop popped into my head. I said, you know, you always talked about this as something maybe you would do when you retired. Dude, what are you waiting for? You know, just open up a web store and learn to do this thing hobby you have as a business and, and see where it goes. So that was five years ago. Uh, I started Model Citizen. And ever since then, it has continued to be a hobby business for me, but it's a growing hobby business. And it has been so much fun. It has been so rewarding, uh, not especially financially, but certainly in terms of the relationships that I've built, the people I've gotten to know uh, as a result of it, uh, and you know the exposure to just the most incredible cars you can imagine. Uh, it's just been great. So you started at the web store. Yes. Um, did you start that with the inventory that you already had from being a collector or is this something no. that you invested some money into? No. So I had uh, gotten, I had sold off a lot of my collection over the years. I was, uh, I was an actor for a while and which uh, is a nice way of saying I was broke for a while and I had to sell off a lot of my collection uh, simply to keep food on the table. Um, but that's okay. You know, that's, that's one of those things. When I started the business, it was with all new inventory. I got, you know, I, I got uh, I established a wholesale relationship with some distributors and some model companies and was able to stock my store that way. Excellent. I know you have a, a very high end selection of cars. Um, not to say there's nothing affordable on there because there certainly is. Uh, but there's is a is a really well 
curated collection almost. When you look at your website, it almost looks like a uh, a scale model museum, like the, the kind of quality of the of the photos and the cars that are in your inventory. So I well, wondered thank if you for that. I, I I appreciate that. No, it's really neat. That's what really drew me into your website. Before I knew who you were, before I met you in person, I knew what your website was. I was part of your, your email mailing list. I was excited to see all the new releases that I sometimes could afford, sometimes couldn't afford. But it was nice to see what was coming out and, and keep you know a, a attack on the industry of diecast cars. Because much like you, Andrew and I pretty much grew up with that same mentality. If it wasn't a car-related activity, we pretty much didn't do it. You know, let, we might have had a couple you, of. Yeah, well, let me ask you about that. Did you get grief from your parents about that? Because I definitely did. I uh, my, my mom, bless her, bless her soul. She, you know, it was just the perfect mother in every way except for one. Their cars were always this other thing, this thing that was not something that you know a bright kid uh, would be encouraged to build a career around um you know she bemoaned how much time i spent reading car magazines how much time i spent playing with cars when i could have been i don't know grooming myself to be president or something but i and so i yeah. so i can't speak for andrew um but i can speak a little bit for andrew because we grew up across the street from one another um and our fathers you know fostered the passion of automobiles in both of us you know, my father built a 38 by 42 foot garage in the backyard. And then Andrew's father was like, hmm, I think I need one of those, too. You know, my dad <laughs> filled it with cars. And Andrew's father was like, hmm, I think I'll do that as well. You know, it was just and, and not that Andrew's dad was copying my dad. They both had the same passion. Um, and it just it just lent itself really well to Andrew and I getting into this hobby and being like obvious car guys because it's all we knew. Uh, my grandmother would constantly say, if only you put the same amount of energy into your schoolwork as you do into yes. reading about cars and building oh, model God. cars and all of that. <laughs> so there was that. Um, I, uh, I don't want to say that I was not encouraged to play with cars because I certainly was. Um, the only place that my life might have been a little different was I was encouraged to, in high school, not work on cars because I think my father was pretty burnt out from working on cars. Um, and he didn't want me working in the industry. They wanted me to go to college and, you know, take the the path that is, you know, as most children of the 80s and 90s were told to do is you need to go to college to make anything of your life. Um, yep. And I, I think that was, and I'm not saying it was a bad thing. That was, you know, their best interest was to have me do well in school uh, when, unfortunately, I did not do well in school and college was not really the path that I could have taken. Um, but. I don't want to say I was ever given grief because I wasn't. It was it was definitely fostered in me. My father bought me my diecast cars when I was a kid. You know, I, I have a similar story about my first high end diecast car. I can still remember it. Um, a one forty third Vitesse, which was a pretty big name in the eighties in the one forty third world. Absolutely. I, I had a silver Ferrari two fifty GTO. That was my first. Um, "Quote unquote high end diecast car," and you know my father bought that for me because he certainly fostered the love of cars. So yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I ever was given any guff about being into it and having a passion for it. It was definitely encouraged. It just wasn't encouraged as a career path, and that's because my father worked in the industry at the time and didn't want me in the industry. <laughs> I, I understand. I better clarify this just in case my old man happens to listen to this. Hi, Dad. Uh, <laughs> this was not a bilateral shaming situation. My dad was was very uh, very encouraging, uh, or or at least enabling of my of my 
enthusiasm for cars. And he was uh, like you, he was the guy who was supplying me with the, you know, every Christmas I got a 118 scale Barago for a couple of years. Yeah. And then when I switched to hot wheels, you know, he, he found a couple of old red lines and I got those for Christmas and I, you know, so, so dad was always very understanding and now that's come full circle. He has gotten into higher end die cast collecting and uh, is one of my best customers. <laughs> well, hey, that's good. You yeah, the encouragement right there, right? So no, to my I, yeah, to my parents' credit, yeah, they never really gave me any trouble. And uh, I guess from my my mom told me she's like, I didn't really care what you were reading if you're reading comic books or car magazines, as long as you were reading, that was fine. She wouldn't give me any guff about that. So yeah, because it really doesn't matter whether you're reading. You know, a book designed for some a child your age, or you're reading a car magazine. You're probably exactly. getting more out of reading a car magazine because the wording and sentence structure and everything is is more adult oriented. And and to and and to her credit, you went to college for journalism, <laughs> so <laughs> she knew something. And then um, growing up, my dad's best friend is really into. He's still really into diecast. He has a huge diecast collection. I remember he would always bring over when they'd hang out the latest Franklin mint car that he would get. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, those were like a real big deal in the eighties and nineties, I think. Oh yeah. That was huge. he would, he would, his friend would always buy me for my birthday up until like a few years ago, uh, like a one eighteen scale Ertl or something. Um, so I have like a ton of one eighteen scale just from that stuff. Well, and the one eighteen scale Ertls, that was, that was the car in the, in the late eighties and early nineties that if you were a one eighteenth collector, you had the uh, Ertl American muscle series. That's, that's what was available. You know, there were the odd Baragos here and there, but you know, um, the Ertl stuff was mainstream. You can go to Toys R Us. You could go to, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a chain store that was existing then, but it's not local, but all, all the ones I know are local chain stores. <laughs> Toys R Us. Yeah, Walmart. Yeah. But we didn't have Walmarts in that era. So we did not They sold. We had, we had uh, riches and Caldor and Ames. And all three of those stores carried 118 scale diecast cars. It was a, such a, a mainstream thing at the time. What was the toy store? Um, Child World in Danvers. Yeah, there's that one. Child World was a national. Toys R Us had them. Did, did you have KB Toys? Out yeah, there? that's what I'm thinking of. K- yeah, KB, KB Toys. Toys. Yeah. Uh, KB Toys actually used to stock Tamiya model kits, which was, you know. Wow. Yeah. I, didn't that. I never saw those there. Yeah, I'll never forget it because the one that was down the street from our house where Andrew, you know, from the street that Andrew and I grew up on, um, had a big model section. And when they went out of business, I wasn't old enough to even have a car yet. I rode my bicycle up there, and I remember they had Tamiya model kits uh, on clearance for 3 to $5 a piece. And uh, I remember buying a ton of them. <laughs> So, so you have to excuse me. I'm, I'm not that up on my Massachusetts geography. What was your childhood proximity to metropolitan Boston? About 25 miles. All right. So uh, at any point in the 90s, did you happen to encounter I, a shop where you're going to exotic car? Yes. <laughs> yes. Tell me about that. So exotic car was a national, like international mail order company. Yes. Um, they oh, had right, right, right. they had showrooms like fancy showrooms in like New York and L.A. and I think there was was there one in Boston or not? There was, there was one in Boston. First of all, it was on Newberry Street, and then they moved their they moved to their uh, their showroom to their warehouse in Framingham. And the reason I know all that is because I worked for Exotic Car for about two years. <laughs> yep. So um, as 
their warehouse in Framingham, they also had a warehouse in Bridgewater, Mass. At one point. Um, which is down Route 24, just south of Boston. That's the one that I'm familiar with. This would have been yeah, late like 90s, early 2000s. Early 2000. Yeah. Like 2001, 2002, 2003. Yep. Um, the, the, the short version of a long story goes, I was dating a girl who went to college down there. Um, and I found out about this diecast store being there. So I managed to, you know, parlay one of my weekend trips in visiting her at college into going down to the store. And I was quickly hooked. Um, <laughs> they had a showroom out front that was, uh, they had some scratch and dent specials that they always have. Yep. Um, but they also had pretty much anything in their catalog was available in their store. Um, and I think Andrew and I both have a couple of pieces from that store at some point in, in time. Um, that was also my first introduction to auto art uh, and Kyoto right. Show uh, and a lot of these brands that uh, really paved the way for the high-end die-cast car market to, to explode the way it has in the past, I don't know, 10 years or so. Yeah, that uh, that scans. I started working for Exotic Car shortly after I moved to LA back in 1999. Um, I was you know, looking for a job, and um, I found out about this shop in Beverly Hills that had models. And I walked through the door. I spent about two minutes looking around, and I walked up to the manager and I said, "You need to give me a job here." <laughs> and and uh, it turned out that they were looking for some additional sales staff and uh the next week i was working there um and that was definitely an eye-opening educational experience in in a lot of regards but uh it definitely was a major factor in my later decision to to start my own diecast company one because of how much fun it was to work there how much fun it was to engage with car enthusiasts on a daily basis in a specialized field that i had a lot of knowledge about it was also very educational in showing me a lot of the things that i didn't want to do uh with a business and i don't really want to get into that too much uh, you know exotic car didn't survive they they didn't uh make it through the other side of uh, the the first great recession here. Um, and I, I have, I have some opinions on why that was, but I will say that it was a whole lot of fun to work there. Um, and it was right at that time when the, those really great next level 118 scale cars were coming online. You know, you mentioned auto art, which was part of a, a bigger company called gateway global. And they had three lines, uh, gate UT and auto art. You mentioned Kyosho as well. And then also we had the ultra premium diecast 118 cars like uh, CMC models and Exoto uh, that we dealt a lot of there. Um, so yeah, so learning about all that stuff, you know, with a front row seat was, was a large part of why I decided to keep that going uh, down the road. Uh, you mentioned the, the kind of the curation of, of the collection at Model Citizen. And a lot of that goes back to the exotic hard days. And they, even though they had a very broad inventory, their real specialty at that time was Ferrari models. This was yeah. during the the pinnacle of the Schumacher era, the Ferrari F1 team, and Ferrari was just the hottest brand, probably of any uh, product uh, in the world. So, knowing knowing that the way to really catch on as a as a model retailer was to have a fairly specific focus. I mean, let's face it. Nowadays, 
my competition is not this model shop over here or this model retailer over here. It's the sum total of the internet. And the only way to stand out, I believe, is to be specific, is to offer a that tightly curated selection so that a certain type of collector knows that that we're the place to go to find it. And as you said, uh, American cars are not our main thing. We do have a few, um, but it's mostly, you know, if you're looking for Chevelles and Camaros, there's not a lot I can do for you. But if you're looking for 911s and Skylines, I'm your man. Right. And at the same time, if you're a 911 and Skyline collector and you also want to buy a 70 Chevelle, I'm sure you can get your hands on it for them. Well, I can try. <laughs> the worst I can say is sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny because you talk back to the exotic car days. Um, you have about five years on me. So in that early 2000s, I was still, you know, 19, 20 years old. And my 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 budget wasn't exactly auto art or um, uh, any of those brands friendly. Uh, I did manage to scrape together enough cash to buy a couple of fancy cars from the exotic car showroom back in the day. And I still have in my collection, I have an auto art WRC uh, Subaru WRX. Mm-hmm. Uh, the would have been the 2000 Monte Carlo race car, I think. Sure. Uh, and I have a the other brand at the time, uh, Mini Champs was a big brand at the time. Mm-hmm. I have their Jägermeister Alpha 155 uh, DTM car, which came from an exotic car. Um, and I have a Mini Champs is the other one. <laughs> Uh, I have a uh, Mini Champs E36 M3 in 143rd that came from that store, and I still have specific memories of buying these three cars because it was such a like it was such a luxury experience to go into their showroom and buy a car from them because you were there with the same people who were spending a thousand dollars on a 143rd scale Ferrari. Yeah, oh man, I could tell you so many stories about uh, about the celebrity clients that Exotic Car attracted back in the day. I mean, being in the Beverly Hills store in particular, it was you know think of a famous car guy from the entertainment industry. They were you know they were regulars. Oddly enough, about the only guy I didn't see regularly was Leno, Uh, like the one guy you would think of first. He never came in, but everybody else would, would come in. I see. Well, I think the thing with Leno is a lot about diecast car collecting is you can collect diecast cars because you can't collect that many real cars. He probably doesn't have as many diecast cars because he has 300 real cars. <laughs> you make a good point. He doesn't really have that, that need to substitute the way that, you know, relative paupers like us do. Now, having said that, I mean, some of my regular clients have fantastic real car collections of their own. Uh, they just, you know, their, their passion is just so uh broad that they have found you know they they still find that same joy in models that we mere mortals do too and i I, love that i i love that the that model cars are a thing that can bring us together as enthusiasts like that i think one of the things that's neat about being in the model car industry and dealing specifically with clients who are there to spend real money on actual nice collector grade diecast cars is you're not selling the product anymore. You're not trying to convince somebody that, hey, no, I'm not spending all my extra savings on toys. Like this is my thing that brings me happiness and brings me passion and is a collectible quality thing. It's not the same as I'm buying a toy because it's, it's, it's a very different thing. It's, it's, it's hard to convince somebody who doesn't know what you're doing that, yeah, you just spent uh, $150 on 
a toy car. But no, I didn't. I spent $150 on something that I can put in my shelf and I can look at all the time and it's collectible. And, you know, nowadays they don't lose value either. They, they're actually a pretty good place to put your money sometimes. Well, I'm sure they can be. Um, but yeah, that's that's one of the nice things about doing business mostly online is that you don't have to have that face-to-face education process. Not that I especially mind it. I'm always happy to, to explain to somebody who is unfamiliar with really high-quality diecast what it is that makes it high-quality and, and makes it more expensive than you know the, the $15 model at Costco, which by the way, um, not, not a dig at those models at all. I, I think that for particularly for a young collector or someone who's just starting out those, you know, Maisto models that you can get at Costco for 15 bucks, a great way to start model car collecting. You get a, you get a hell of a lot of model for 15 bucks that way. You know, my, my inventory is for someone who has been through that phase and they're ready for the next step in in quality and in detail but i'll never i'll never bag on somebody you get on these facebook groups with uh, 18 scale collectors like oh sorry and they, people are all apologetic oh sorry it's just low quality maestos it's like dude shut up that model means something to you and that's what really matters here it doesn't matter if it's it doesn't matter if it's not the most detailed thing it is a thing that stokes your fire and i I salute that. To put it another way, I still collect Hot Wheels cars like a fiend. You know, I sell $300 models all the time, but every time I go into Ralph's or Target, I'm not coming out of there without a Hot Wheels car. We we, we joke because I'm the same way. Uh, and like Naomi and I go to the grocery store and or Walmart or wherever, and the first stop is always the Hot Wheels aisle. Uh, if and, you're a good boy, you get one. Well, no, it's the first stop now because I'm an adult. <laughs> I don't have to worry about being a good boy in the store the whole time. But we always joke because... You know, I remember once I said something. I was like, no, we got to go to Hot Wheels aisle first. She's like, no, no, we got this, this, this section's first. And this is back, you know, in the beginning of, of a relationship. And I remember being like, no, we have to go to the Hot Wheels aisle first because if somebody else gets there before me and gets the good stuff, I'm never going to forgive you. Exactly. <laughs> you get it. You understand. They could, be buying you- it. they could be buying the good stuff right now. And I'm here, and I missed it, and that will make me very angry. <laughs> oh man! And then you get you get the scalpers there too. And I don't know if you've ever had an a, a, a personal encounter with a Hot Wheels scalper at One a time. big box. Yes. Oh wow! It I is have. it is educational. Yeah. It is weird. Yes. Yeah, it's very weird. I, I had an experience once where there was a father and son who were. Um, on the phone with somebody, and they had all of the Hot Wheels cars in their cart like 500 of them in their carriage. Uh, Was that when you were around here? I wonder if I ran into the same duo. Possibly. One of the Kmart's on there when it was the Kmart was on its way out and it was like the son and the dad was on speakerphone or vice versa. And he's like, don't tell your mom I'm going to put these in the credit card. And 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 they had like, he had like all, I think the Datsuns, like maybe the 620 truck had launched that day or something. Oh, it was the K-Mark it was, it was K-Day, a K-Day. blue one. So it was yeah. one of those K-Day uh, things where they had the exclusive Hot Wheels, right? Yeah, yeah. and I yeah. just wanted one, and they had a cart full of all of them. <laughs> like, come you, on. You, you yell fire and then take one? <laughs> yeah, no, Hot Wheels collectors are a whole different thing. We actually, here in Phoenix, we have a Hot Wheels store that uh, it exclusively sells diecasts. Um, is that uh, cubby hole cubby hole yes yep um they don't have what i would say a big selection of high-end stuff um they don't really do much 118th unless it comes from a collection 
is they do buy collections. Yes. Um, what they do have is they have and not to advertise somebody else's business here, but it's not the same. It's not your. It's not your direct competitor at all. So, <laughs> um, what they do have is they have glass cabinets in the store, uh, and you can rent them if you're a collector. Yeah. You can you can sell your stuff in their store. So sometimes there'll be a cabinet full of decent, you know, high end stuff, and sometimes there won't. And a friend of mine out here actually has a cabinet there, um, who does a lot of Japanese stuff in one sixty fourth oh, scale. Is so. it Jeff Koch? That's Jeff. Yes. Yeah, I know yeah. Jeff real well. Yeah, we, we we joke that Jeff is my drug dealer <laughs> because I literally will meet him in a parking lot and buy things out of the trunk of his car. Well, I I appreciate that you guys have the similar philosophy in facial hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're both sortly, sort of portly gentlemen with facial hair that uh, meet in McDonald's parking lots and trade buying Hot Wheels cars. So, you see, that's how you know that I keep things high end because every year uh, I see Jeff at the Hot Wheels convention in L.A. And every year when I walk through the door of his hotel room, I'm dropping a bag of In-N-Out burgers on him. So, you know, you got to ah. elevate, your, elevate your burger game. Well, Jeff, Jeff is an interesting character for anybody who doesn't <laughs> know him. He's a, he's a writer for Hemmings, actually, a writer and photographer for Hemmings magazine. Um, and he's, uh, he's a very well-rounded car guy who happens to be a collector slash dealer of uh, 164th pretty much exclusively. Um, and I'll, I'll get to 164th with you in a minute here, but um, that's a whole new world I actually world have a now. question about scales before okay. we get too far. Sure. So why don't we uh, – let's, let's jump to your question, Andrew. All right. Oh, actually, so, let, me, let, me, let me talk about Jeff real quick because we're talking about him already. Um, yeah. You can find him on Instagram at the Toy Pimp. Uh, and if you want 164th, he's the guy to go to. So I'm sure I'm sure you don't mind us plugging him along there too. Not only do I not mind, I will actually give him an endorsement as well. I mean, if you are looking for, especially anything Japanese, uh, yeah. either a, a Japanese mark or a Japanese toy company, Jeff is your man. He's great to do business with. His selection is absolutely astonishing. Um, just uh, strongly recommended. I, I won't lie. I actually got a package in my mailbox today from Jeff. So. It's all good. Anyway, Andrew, what is your question? All right. So growing up in the 90s, 118 scale was like the go-to scale with then, like I said, the Franklin Mint 124th being kind of like super detailed. Is 118th, because I'm not as deep into collecting as Brad is, is 118th like still a go-to scale or is stuff getting smaller? And why is it getting smaller? Is it because the technology is better to make it more detailed? There are a couple of ways I can attack that question. Um, so let, let me go back in, in time a little bit here and kind of talk yeah. about the, the roots of 118. Okay. And actually, kind of the roots of, of, of the other major collector scales. So 118 scale didn't really arrive until the late 1970s. And the reason for that is actually tied up in the other popular scales. So model car collecting, well, I got to go even further back than this. The first die cast cars emerged in the 1920s after the technology of die casting was invented. Die casting was created or was, you know, was industrialized during World War I uh, as a way to manufacture uh, uniform gun parts so that if you had to repair a gun in the field you know, prior to that guns were you know all the parts were handmade and the tolerances were wrong and the replacement part might not fit your your weapon so in world war one we had mechanized war and they've got you know they had to find a way to make these parts 
to that would fit uniformly. So they created die casting. And after the war ended, it was an industrial process in search of an application. So all kinds of consumer goods started getting made by die casting. And one of them was toys. And one of the first companies that started doing that was uh, Doust Brothers in Chicago. Uh, they had a line called Tootsie Toy. And if you're you know, old as hell like I am, you probably had some, some Tootsie Toys when you were a kid. Uh, but really good quality, well-detailed model cars that were die-cast didn't show up until the 1930s. There were three different companies that were making them. And the reason that the the major scale that emerged from that time was 143, and the reason that happened was because it corresponds roughly to I want to say N gauge or O gauge railroads, um, and so the McConnell company. I'm sorry. O gauge. Okay, yeah, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah, N-Gage is 1-166th, I think. It's real small. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so so Meccano, the, the British company, had a very popular line of O-Gage trains, and they started making these uh, road vehicles as accessories for their train sets. And the road vehicles became so popular uh, by themselves that Meccano spun them off as their own line and they gave them this great name. They called them Dinky. So that was kind of the first of the big mainstream uh, 143rd scale diecast companies. And then after World War II, we had, you know, Corgi came along and this whole cottage industry of 143rd scale diecast companies emerged in Europe. And they were, they kind of straddled the line between adult collectible and toys for kids they were kind of it priced that way and, and detailed that way uh and then in 1968 the toy car world changed when mattel brought out hot wheels and that was pretty much the big schism where toy cars were going to go one way and these larger scale cars were going to become we're going to stop being toys and start being adult collectibles and of course, up to that time, you'd also had 124, which was the most American of scales because that was the scale that all of the plastic model kits were. So up to that point in time, you had 143 was the big European thing, and then 124 was was the big American thing. So Hot Wheels happens, and toys become 164 scale, and 143 is the international collector standard. So one of the interesting things that happened when Hot Wheels became popular was that Mattel decided that they wanted to get a piece of the adult collectibles market. And rather than develop their own, they just went out and found a, a 143 diecast company to buy. Uh, that company was, and I always mispronounce this, it's Mibi Toys, Maybe Toys. It was an Italian company. And they bought, they bought them and they rebranded them as Hot Wheels Grand Toros. So what happened was Mibi Toys was owned by this guy named Mario Bassana, this Italian toy maker. So he had all the he sold out to Mattel and he had all this money, but he still was a toy maker and he was looking for something to do. So he decided that he was going to launch a new toy, a, a collectible diecast car line. But there were all these other 143 companies. And he wanted to do something different. So he looked around and saw that Americans liked bigger model cars and there weren't bigger scale model cars and there weren't really a lot of things on the market there were a few oddball 116 cars here and there uh so he, because 116 was also adopted by the plastic car plastic right. model car industry too so right. that makes sense. 
Uh, so in the mid-70s, he started experimenting with 118 scale cars. And uh, after a couple of years, they'd started to catch on. And he, uh, he named his company after the town where, where it was founded, Barago. So, and he added B for Bassana to the start. So you've got B Barago models. And that was the beginning of 118 scale cars. The thing, two major things happened to make 118 catch on in America as a preferred scale. Uh, other than the fact that they have the advantage of being large, they have a lot of eye appeal. You can put a lot of detail into them and have it be you know, visible from three feet away as opposed to a 143rd scale car. You got to really get up close and look at it. So the two major things, number one was the birth of yuppie culture. 1980s, you had these young urban professionals who had a lot of discretionary income and were really into gadgets and toys. And the Bible for this crew was the Sharper Image catalog. And if you flip through the Sharper Image catalog in the 1980s, boom, there they were, Barago 118 scale cars. And they retailed back then for $25 or $30. And so that was an easy indulgence for these people to, to get into. And of course, if you were a young person like myself who was definitely under the influence of materialistic yuppie culture, you wanted to get a piece of that too. And the nice thing was that as a special occasion purchase, like a Christmas gift, you could get one. And that's how I got Baragos. So that was thing number one. The other thing, and you'll be surprised slash not surprised to, to learn this, the other thing that helped launch 118 into the mainstream was the TV show Home Improvement. Yeah, that makes pause, sense. Pause for reaction. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I could see that, yeah. Sure. I mean, and, and this is not an original idea that I had. Um, actually, it was the founder of Exoticar who who uh, proposed this to me, and I, I believe him. Uh, when Tim Allen started putting 118 scale cars in his television living room, I think that gave a lot of people permission to start doing the same thing in their own homes. And so that really made 118 scale cars take off. And that was right around about the time that Maisto was getting going as a competitor for Barago. And then just within a few years, you had Mini Champs making 118 and even Ravel for a while was making 118. You had the Ertl line come along. And by the end of the decade, you had uh, UT models and, and auto art. And it just exploded from there. Did that even come close to answer? I don't even remember what the original question was, Andrew. I'm sorry. No, it was where the the scale came from. Like, how did we get to that point? That that no, that was really good because I didn't know any of that history, uh, uh, and I bet a lot of people don't know the history. So that's really cool that you shared that. Thank you. Yeah, I, sure. I knew up, I knew up through the version. There's it's the actual the real history. It's so rich and so detailed. I if you are into model cars at all, I definitely recommend looking into some of the stories of how these model companies came along and and how different scales became different popular at different times and why. Well, so I guess the, sorry, Brad. The second part of the question would be, um, you know, as the technology has gotten better is that why the scales are getting smaller or are, or are people still buying 118th or are they i see more maybe because i'm looking for it i see more 143rd i guess i think it is a i think it's market driven um the fact that 143rd scale cars have gotten so much better and so much more detailed over the years is incidental uh, i think that frankly 
the advantage that 143rd scale cars have over 118 is that there are several actually. One, it's the obvious one, they take up way less space. And right now, we're going through a period when people are divesting themselves of stuff. They don't want to have so much stuff around. They don't want to have so much bulk in their lives. And as someone who sells collectibles, I hate that, but oh well. <laughs> um, uh, so looking at the space commitment that is required for 143rd scale cars, they're very appealing. You can fit two or three of them in the same display space that you would otherwise have to dedicate to just one 118 scale car. The other major appeal of 143 is the variety that's available. It's, it just seems like absolute, absolutely any car that you can imagine has been made at one point in time in 143rd scale. Uh, and I think the reason for that is because it's very, it's much cheaper to produce the tooling for them. Uh, 118, it's a little more, it's more expensive to tool up. So you have to focus on making cars that are more universally popular. So you're not going to get as much variety in, in what you can make, what, what you can sell. So I think variety and size are the two major drivers cost also to an extent although you know $75 for a 143rd scale car is not inconsequential I know that uh, but I, I think size and variety are, are the main things and as you mentioned the detail on them has gotten so much better I always point to spark models um, I, if, if you or your listeners are, are unfamiliar they are a company that emerged uh, 10 or 15 years ago uh, they're based in Hong Kong, Macau. Uh, anyway, they make beautiful 143rd scale resin models, just incredibly well detailed. Uh, and they're resin cast with lots of small plastic pieces that are photo etched, which is laser cut to make model. And, and they retail for 75 or $80. I saw them for 75 on my website. Uh, to get that level of detail 20 years ago, you were looking at at, at the retail level, two hundred dollars. So I think that the the value proposition of one forty third scale cars has become more attractive thanks to that technology. I the, the resin casting technology is something that's really changed the industry a lot lately, especially in the one eighteenth world, um, because it's brought down the tooling costs significantly, so they can make a less popular car. Uh, and sell less of them in order to make their money back. So that's certainly that's... been a huge, a huge thing. The trade-off is the cars are usually a sealed car. They don't have opening features. Um, they're, they're something you put in your shelf and you look at. There's no extra features with them usually. It's just it's a neat-looking shelf piece. That's exactly right, and that is a major schism in the model car world. There are, I like to call them die-cast dead-enders, people who will never consider having a plastic-bodied model car in their collection. And I do understand it to an extent. For you know, 25 years, we had die-cast metal exclusivity in 118 scale cars it's it wasn't that way with 143 resin casting has been around in that since the 1960s 1970s uh, but it was a new thing for the larger scale cars and for the exact reason you mentioned um, some time ago uh, i was quoted the figure on what it costs to develop the tooling for a 
metal bodied fully opening 118 scale car and that was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars yeah that's that's like quarter million is a number i've heard yeah Yeah, that's a really big investment to do the tooling for a sealed resin 118 scale car the number i've heard is four thousand dollars so there's that uh the trade-off in terms of the manufacturing process is that the resin molds degrade much much faster so you're only going to get a couple thousand pieces out of that mold before the mold disintegrates whereas with a me- with a die cast metal you just make and make and make and make but you're going to have to to recover your tooling costs so as you said the, that's why we get such incredible variety uh, in in resin cars because they're much more affordable to make so now we have auto art they've found a third way they are making it seems like they're shifting their entire production to abs plastic bodied cars and the nice thing about that is that you get fully opening parts you get you get engine detail you get doors that open um when they launched this they told us they were it was going to be a substantial cost savings over over diecast metal cars that didn't really happen but i think that was more because of increasing labor costs in china than it was uh than it was material costs but i think that has that has yielded a very attractive alternative to metal cars and to resin cars you kind of get the best of both uh, even though the subject matter is still not as deep in variety as with pure resin cars but i as someone who sells a lot of the abs bodied auto art cars they're really nice and i wish that people would let their guards down about plastic and just check them out the detail that you get with them is fantastic the shut lines are wonderful the wheel fitments are wonderful they just really are quite nice pieces. So somebody in in my age group, you know, I'm just shy of 40. Um, so I grew up with the Baragos and the Maestos and those as my my standard 118th in the, in, the, in the Earl cars. I was never a big fan of opening panels. Um, the problem with die casts is the, the panel gap between a, a door that opens in the quarter panel on that same car doesn't look scale to the car in order to work properly on a die cast body, especially in the eighties and nineties. So I was never, I never saw the appeal in additional opening parts. It took away from me from the scale fidelity of the car sitting on my shelf. I'd rather have the car not open and have proportional, you know, panel lines that made the car look more like a real car. So it always seemed odd to me that people would complain that the car didn't open up because once the car sits on a shelf on a collection, it's not like you're a child who's got it on the floor playing with it. It's not a play value thing. It's merely a display piece in your shelf. And I never thought it made a difference whether that part car opened up or didn't open up. If a part was visible from the outside, then they could make it look as nice as they would if the part opened up. But my the- personal feeling is that I agree with you. That's my preference is when I do display model cars, I display them in a curbside configuration with everything closed. Yeah. Uh, having said that, don't totally dismiss the play value of an opening diecast model car there are a lot of collectors who really still want that and i i don't know if it is because it's rooted in the the childlike wonder we used to get from toy cars way back when or whether it's just because it was for decades that was that was just the norm you got a you got a fully opening car and you know shut lines be damned 
Um, I don't know. There are a lot of people who still are clinging to that and demand to have that extra level of detail. Um, yeah, but for me personally, I like them closed, but I, I get the, I get the argument. I just, I just wish we could all get along. (laughs) (laughs) The the other complaint I heard early on in, in the resin world was that the windows never quite looked right because they're usually pretty flat. Um, I noticed that recently has, has gotten a lot better. It has, uh, for the most part, every once in a while, you still get some cars that have a very thin, very flimsy window material, um, and and the pro- one of the other problems with that is if it's a sealed resin car with plastic windows and heaven forbid some dust gets in there, it, you're stuck with it. You can't uh, sh- unless you disassemble the car, which you're not going to do. It's just permanently dusty inside. Right. I never thought about that, but that's uh, that's certainly a point for, for, for contention there. <laughs> I don't have a problem with resin cars, I guess is basically what I'm saying. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from, A, like I said, the, the opening features never did much for me. Um, but I would rather have a manufacturer make an obscure car than have that car not exist in scale. So especially being somebody who's into more obscure cars like I am, you know, I don't want a shelf full of Corvettes. That doesn't do anything for me. I don't want a shelf full of every Ferrari ever made. It doesn't do anything for me. I like when the diecast manufacturer or scale car manufacturer, I guess we can say at this point, make something like a Renault 5 or a Mitsubishi Starion or something that's just out of left field that wouldn't normally be something that a company would invest a quarter million dollars making a mold for. Right. Um, and and the fact that they come in limited runs is also appealing because if you buy it when it first comes out and you buy it at the retail price that it is, a lot of times I'm noticing, uh, maybe it's because I've gotten lucky with some of the ones that I've bought, but they've gone up in value if you look at them now on eBay you know, or, or, or any reseller. If they have a car that was out of production for three years you know, and it was $75, $100 when it was new, Sometimes they're three, four hundred bucks now because they're not available. I don't really recommend personally uh, getting buying cars for their potential appreciation value. Oh, no, 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 just, no, no. And and I say that as somebody who I was never a baseball fan, but I bought uh, way too many baseball cards on speculation, and I, I I still have them, and they mean nothing to me, and I'll never be able to get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, I, and it, again, I'm not I'm not saying you should do it. It's just. I mean, maybe it's my, my luck that I had a couple that I've noticed that did do that, where I bought them fairly inexpensively. And now I was like, oh, I, I could buy another one of those to have one on my shelf in the house and one on the shelf at my desk. And I looked it up online and I was like, that's now $430. I'm not going to spend that. I wonder if there's room in the world for somebody to become the Keith Martin of model cars, like a sports car market magazine for diecast. Well, hmm. Sounds like you're our man. <laughs> 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 But let's not do that. <laughs> so as as we discuss scale and where scale came from, do you have a preferred scale or are you more of whatever the subject is, I'm interested in it? It's somewhere between the two. My my two preferred scales, uh, and this is reflected at the model citizen in the model citizen inventory, are 118 and 143. And for the reasons we discussed, I love the big, beautiful detail of 118. I love the variety offered by and the ease of display offered by 143. Uh, they are along with 124 and, and 164, the international standard scales. You know, you're gonna you, if you go to Europe, you're gonna find 
stores that you know is exclusively stock 143rd scale cars, which I think is cool. Uh, just the cars that I like personally, they tend to be offered in those scales, and that's that's where I sit. I will say that 112th scale. Uh, kind of bucking the trend of people downsizing their space requirements for their collections. One twelfth scale is increasing in popularity. There, are, there are a lot of new offerings in this bigger format, and I think that is I, honestly, I don't know why that is. I, I have no idea what it is that's making that that I, appealing. I have, a, I have a thought on that. It's, what is that? It's the people who are going to buy the one twelfth scale because they're a lot more money, have more money. Generally, a lot of these people who are a little more ostentatious would rather have something that's really big sitting on a shelf. Um, and because of the resin casting and and the cheaper materials they're making now and the limited runs they're doing, um, the collectability of the limited run thing, I think, is something that a lot of collectors latch on to versus, hey, I'm one of only 100 people that has this. I'm one of only 50 people that has it with this stripe package and this you know, exhaust configuration. I, I think that is something that really speaks to some of the super high end collectors. Uh, and and I'm, I'm saying that coming from the world of 164th, because I'm starting to get way into 164th, because again, I want to talk about this in a minute, but uh, it's exploding right now. But limited production stuff and stuff that has like serious presence or things that would like really be flashy on a shelf is really starting to pick up with people. And I think that's probably a similar thing with the 112 scale. It's people who want to be like, I have the biggest, I have the best. Only 50 people in the world have this thing like I have this. And I think that's part of the problem, part, part of the thing there. I'll buy that, but like so many other things, let's see how that looks in a, in a year. Oh yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm not, again, I'm not saying you should invest in these things. I'm just saying that's probably a part of the thing. You know, it's sure. the whole... I, I, I can afford to have the best. I want you to know I have the best. And I'm going to put the best right here so you can drool over my best. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of how I see that. But as that's not any of us, obviously, because, you know, we're just the, the plebes of the model car collecting world over here. Oh, yeah. So, People always ask me, oh, you must you must have just a fabulous collection. You know what? I really don't. I have a few special pieces, but I cannot afford personally to collect models to the degree that I would certainly like to. I don't have the money. I don't have the space. Um, as a dealer, I get to possess these cars for a very short period of time, and then I send them off to their new homes. I'm, I'm, I'm like a fantasy junction, you know, I, but, but on a small yeah. scale. I have them for a brief shining moment, and then they go live with, you know, collectors that's, with bucks. That's the beauty of it. You get to enjoy all of them without having to make the long-term commitment to them, and you can constantly change and constantly see new things. And, you know, I'm sure if you wanted to have one – you know, obviously you wouldn't sell it as a brand new model, but if you wanted to put it on your shelf for a month and look at it, you could, you know, and then it would be just, that's your way of enjoying it, which is totally acceptable. Sure. So. Or the thing that I find myself doing when I do keep a car, it's usually because there's some microscopic defect on it that only a hardcore collector would, would notice. And it's the kind of thing that would drive them crazy. Right. Um, I'm a little more tolerant of those things. So if there's something that it's like, there's a defect that makes it just that level of unsellable, I'll, I'll keep that. I'll be the Island of lost toys for that car. <laughs> so uh, one of my favorite pieces actually is an Australian manufacturer, a 118th 69 Camaro race car. I don't remember the manufacturer. Would um, it be Beyonce? Maybe. 
It's it's of an improved touring car, 69 Camaro race car that's currently campaigned in Australia. It's an amazingly very well detailed, one, detailed 118 scale cast. But my particular um, piece is missing the driver's side mirror. So I, I, a hardcore core collector probably wouldn't want that car in their collection. But, you know, I just put the passenger side out. Nobody can tell. Sure. So. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you been following the trend in 164th scale at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I always have uh, to an extent. Uh, obviously, it's not where my business lives. But as I said, I was a serious Hot Wheels collector for a long time. In fact, I got started on that in the 1980s before Hot Wheels collecting from an adult perspective became the monster that it is today. Uh, when I started, there might have been two or three hundred serious Hot Wheels collectors in the country. Uh, obviously, there are a couple more than that now. Uh, but yeah, as I said earlier, 164 uh, cars are still very appealing to me. And the proliferation in high-end uh, in high end 164 is a great thing. I love Tamika limited vintage. I haven't, uh, I haven't had any, Oh, what's that? Uh, tarmac works. I don't own any tarmac works cars, but I think they're really cool. And, uh, it's something that I'd like to start selling at some point. Uh, well, next time you're in Phoenix, stop on by because I have become addicted to tarmac works, uh, and Inno 64 mm-hmm. and the new brand para 64. Um, and I have, in the past couple of years, I probably have about 50 of them here in my personal collection because they're, they became the most appealing to me because they're doing subject matter that I love and they're doing it in a scale that I'm able to put a bunch of them in a small place. Uh, and to me, they're the 143rd of the 80s because they, they come in their little plastic cubes. They're set back towards the thing, back towards the end of the cube, and they have a detail about the car on a little plate in front of the car, much like a 143rd in the 80s or 90s would have had. Um, and for 20 bucks, you know, there's something that every couple of months I can pick one up, and it doesn't really make a huge issue in my life. It's not like buying a $200 car every couple of months. Um, and, and the detail on them is amazing, and they're certainly a whole new world of diecast car for me. I've always been a Hot Wheels guy. You know, I, I was a collector before I knew I was a collector. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. I'd have my Hot Wheels cars on the shelf on display. Um, and if I wasn't going to do anything with them for a while, I would put a tissue over them and then put an elastic around it, like a car cover, to keep them clean and in good shape. Um, which is crazy. Which is, it's completely well, that's, crazy. That's, that's, that's not weird, crazy. That's, that's completely logical. <laughs> that, is, that is normal behavior. But that was coming from my father, who would always have his car covers on his real cars. So obviously, I'm emulating that as a child and being like, well, you have to cover the car to keep it in good shape. I'm going to cover my Hot Wheels car on the shelf. Um, and I'm sure that my parents or grandparents, or, no, unfortunately, they can't because they're passed. But my parents and grandparents could tell you stories about me sitting on the floor, covering my cars in tissues, and then putting a little elastic around the bottom to keep it on like a car cover. And it was me trying to maintain the condition of my cars like my father did his real cars. So I was collecting before I knew I was collecting. I was playing, but I was also collecting sure. because the majority of my childhood Hot Wheels cars are still in the condition they were when they popped out of the blister pack. Right. So well, I've, I've always had that love for 164th. Um, let me ask you, I'm sorry to interrupt, but let me ask you, did you ever have as a kid 
a like a gasp moment in front of a rack of Hot Wheels cars at the store. We're like, I, I yes. can't believe this thing is there. I must have this one car. And I mean like a literal gasp. Did, did that ever happen to you? Yes. Um, I can still remember it because it was at an AIM store with my grandmother. Uh, and it was when I discovered that Hot Wheels released the same castings, sometimes with plastic wheels and sometimes with rubber reel riders. Oh, yeah. And they were in the same selections and they were out at the same times. And when I realized that, I'll never forget, it, it was a Bronco, uh, a Ford Bronco, full-size Bronco in black. Um, and there was a cat that had the black wall tires on it. Uh, and my father drove a Bronco at the time, so I was super excited about it. And I remember I was flipping through the Hot Wheels cars and there was another black Bronco, the same casting, the same deco and everything, but it had the, you know, real rider rubber tires and the plastic wheels. Um, and I, I remember like throwing the other one over my shoulder and buying that one. <laughs> it's it funny, one, super one, of my two, one of my two little kid gasp moments was also over a Hot Wheels real rider, but that was the second one. The first one was in 1981. I was six years old and we were at the little, the little toy store in the big mall. And I wasn't, you know, going to be getting anything that day. It had been made clear to me already, but right. I went to the rack and there on in a blister was the brand new matchbox casting of the Ferrari 308 GTB. And it's okay. like, gasp, I have to have this. I have to have it now. It was red and yellow. No, it was just red. Just just okay. red, red with red rockers. It was red, red, red. And I, so that was my grail car for like three years. The car that dethroned it a few years later was same thing going through Wynn's department store and stop gasp double take hot wheels real rider 427 cobra oh the blue one the blue one with the white stripes i said yep. yep that's coming home with me too and those were for the longest time those were my two most prized cars so that i have a story about that same matchbox 308 because um there's one in my father's garage uh, my parents still live in the same house they lived in since I was that since I was four years old. Um, so when I was probably five or six, so early to mid eighties, um, I also bought that Ferrari three hundred eight, but it was yellow and red. So it was probably the second release of it, mm-hmm. uh, and I gave it to my father as a gift because in my mind, my father at the time his dream car was a, a Pantera, and in my mind, the Ferrari three hundred eight from Matchbox was close enough to a Pantera that I had to get it for him when I was in the store. That is very sweet. And and that store, that car is still on a shelf in his garage next to his stereo. That's so, adorable. That is a great yeah. story. But yeah, it's the same kind of thing. Like I, I had saw the car and I was like, that's the Pantera. I, mean, I know I know it's not a Pantera. I probably knew at the time it wasn't a Pantera because I never didn't know cars. But at the time it was close enough. And that was the car my dad wanted. So I got him a Matchbox car of it. It's still sitting there. So yeah, these, 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 these things started real earlier in our life. And that's where we're at now. Yeah. So. Still playing with I mean, cars. I love it. Yeah, I, I was ruined from birth because I remember my father having a slot car track in the basement um, before I was even old enough to play with it. Him being down there with his friend Glenn playing with slot cars, you know. So it's it's always been a an ingrained thing in my brain, and you know, and and Andrew's brain as well. And that's how we grew up across the street from each other. And you know, we had the same Hot Wheels cars and the same Micro Machines and the same RC cars and the same slot cars and the same model cars and. 
as an adult life, we have some of the same real cars now, but it's just, it's just kind of how it worked out. It's just, we, we grew the same taste together and it's what made us the friends we are today. And it also, a lot of this podcast can lend itself to existing because of toy cars. It's, it's funny how that works. My best friend and I have, have the same experience of bonding over model cars. And Brad, I know you know this story, so forgive me if I'm boring you, but for all of you, no, please tell, all, all, tell all, all, all about Mr. Ben. Yeah, so um, so as I mentioned repeatedly, I, I was a very young adult perspective Hot Wheels collector, and I didn't really have anyone to share that with. And then in the middle, of, uh, and then at the beginning of my eighth grade year in school, I went to this very small private school in in El Paso. Uh, and at the beginning of that year, this new kid named Ben showed up, and he was a car guy, but he wasn't really into. Uh, toy cars and the model cars. And so I started spreading the gospel to him of die cast collecting and he got really into it. And, uh, then halfway through the year, my family moved to Michigan and I lost touch with Ben for 20 something years. Uh, and you know, high school happens and college happens and careers and cross country moves happen. And finally, and then Facebook happens. And sometime, I, I, I guess it was around 2010, I was just, you know, screwing around on Facebook. I said, I wonder whatever happened to my old friend Ben Shu from Texas. And I found him and he was living in the L.A. area, as was I. And so I reached out and we, we reconnected. And I won't say it was like we picked up right where we left off. There was kind of a, oh, wow, we, we used to know each other, but we don't really know each other that well anymore. But that spark was still there. And so he and I made up for lost time really fast and, you know, come to find out that he grew up to be the found, the co-founder and the editor in chief of Japanese nostalgic car. And so he and I have had a lot of automotive adventures in the past 10 years as a result of bonding over hot wheels cars in 1988. You know, and let's fast and I, forward to now. Yeah. His company, Japanese nostalgic car, has their own branding on actual Hot Wheels cars, which is yes. which is like the childhood dream. It is, and and Ben is so sweet. He he credits me with like setting him on the path that led him there. I'm like, I think we might have gotten there on your own anyway, Ben. But thanks for saying that nice thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, he and I have uh, co-produced uh, a vintage Japanese car rally called Toge California. Yeah, uh, we can do again, by the way. I'm telling you, tell, tell all of your OEM friends that we need sponsors. Um, and also he's, he's got a, a baby. So there, there's that in the way. And then there's well, then you also, need to do it. I, I know, I, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm volunteering right now to, uh, help you out, whatever you need. I, I just need entries, man. <laughs> Not, well, I, I, I can guarantee you we can get those. Well, you, now you've got, wait a minute. You have what a 78 Colt. Uh, as yeah that's one of them that's one of them so the the reason i'm asking about that in particular is that we are pretty strict about pre-1980 entries that's okay. that's an eligible car i have if four eligible cars again. so so there you go yeah, we're uh, but, yeah, but ben and i still go out and when we hang out we still go out and we peg hunt and if i'm at a store and i see some crazy hot wheels i'll you know i'll text hey do you need this one and usually he already has it but uh it's just a it's still a thing all these years later that we still do it is it, it was the foundational bond of what has turned out to be a lifelong friendship 
Yeah, I'll, I'll never be able to thank Ben enough for when he went to Japan last time and he went to the Mitsubishi Museum uh, and he picked up a bunch of things for me uh, in their museum store at the end. So that's the kind of guy Ben is. He's a great, great, great guy. So actually, Andrew and I need to have him on the podcast for sure. Yeah, you do. Absolutely. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't, this hasn't happened yet. I don't know why. You know, Ben and I go back to the beginning of JNC in the forum days and he actually has some Massachusetts connections as well. So that's well, he lived there. He after he, did. he yep. did he live there before or after Texas? I think he I can't remember. But yeah, I think he, it was after. Yeah. But anyway, I met him at a car show in Connecticut back in probably 2000 and I don't know, 03 or 04, maybe that far back. So it was definitely a long time ago. So you should definitely be on the podcast and you guys should definitely do the Toge rally together again. Uh, and if you need any help, I'm volunteering right now for that. I, I need help from an OEM. I need help from a car company. <laughs> I need that sweet car company cash to make it happen. All right. Well, we'll have to uh, <laughs> we'll have to talk off the air here. Right. Um, <laughs> so to, to to wrap things up a little bit because we're going a little bit long, uh, which is great by the way. No 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 problems there. Uh, Model Citizen Diecast. Yes. Is where people go to buy your things. That's modelcitizendiecast.com. Yes. Um, you do have a pretty neat little vehicle that you use for some of your local shows, correct? <laughs> I do. Yeah. As long as, uh, as long as the RMS is not just leaking copious amounts onto the pavement. Okay. Well, so what, what is this vehicle? Can you tell our, our listeners about it a little bit so we can, sure, can I bring have, in a little bit of real car content here at the end? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I have a 1989 Toyota panel van. Uh, it is uh pedophile white with no windows. Um, and Perfect the, for toy car collector. It really is. It's like, <laughs> come here, kids. I got hot wheels. Uh, I, the, the short version of a long story is uh, Model Citizen is a side business for me. My main job is I work for one of the big three uh, music companies. And shortly after I started working there, I noticed this little uh, semi-abandoned looking 89 Toyota van in, in the parking garage. And I quickly discovered that it belonged to the company that I work for. And I made the inquiries. I made the offer. I bought it for a stupid cheap amount of money. Uh, threw uh, a lot of new parts at it. It was in great condition. It, it, it was an 89. I bought it in 2017. It only had 50,000 miles on it. Uh, wow. And, you know, if, if you know old Toyotas, you know that they all the dashes are always just cracked and horrible. This one was pristine because it was always parked indoors. It hardly ever saw the light of day. Uh, so I have pressed this thing into service as my, well, frankly, it's my daily driver um, when I'm daily driving anywhere. Um, I, I take it to Model Citizen vending events. I've taken it to, it's been shown at... Um, two or three Radwoods. Uh, it's been, it's been to San Francisco Radwood once it's been to, I think all of the LA Radwoods and well, almost all of them. Uh, I've taken it to car week in Monterey once, uh, uh, shows down in San Diego all the time. Just, it goes all over Southern California. Um, and it is, it's cool because it gets uh, equal cred in Manhattan beach and in Boyle Heights, Every, you know, people relate to this van for some weird reason. It's it's simple and it's unpretentious, and it just makes people smile, especially me. It's it's a thirty to forty year cycle of things. People have nostalgia for things from their youth when they're in their thirties and forties, and it's right in that wheelhouse right now. That's exactly so it. I, I I currently also I have a seventy eight Toyota pickup um, that I've been working on for the past two months. Um, and I've never been stopped so many times while working on something in a garage by people walking by on the street. So how many offers to buy it do you get? 
Uh, I haven't had any personally, but it's actually stored at Naomi's son's house, and he's had a couple while I wasn't there. Yeah, that's um, the thing. People are always flagging me down in this thing, wanting to sell it, and and it's always a more than you can afford pal situation. It's like, yeah, yeah, I would sell it tomorrow. <laughs> Somebody wrote me a big check, but yeah. I'm not yeah. going to give it away. It's like <laughs> no low bars. I know what I have. So obviously, we don't have any events coming up because of times. Um, well, that uh, huh, that that remains to be seen. I actually have something on the calendar that hasn't been canceled yet. I'm scheduled to vend at Works Reunion Monterey uh, in early August, um, and you know almost everything all else. Monterey stuff was canceled. Almost all of it has been, but there are a few events that are still hanging on the calendar, and I have not gotten confirmation that it's off. Well, so that's your next event. So we'll promote that. So the Works Reunion yeah. at Monterey. <laughs> yeah, works reunion. If, if it's there, you'll be there. Yeah, that's about the size of it. I, yeah, uh, I'm having some. I am having some philosophical pangs about that. Is, do I really want to do that? Uh, but yeah, that's another. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Well, to, not not to bring it off too far off topic, but I had a conversation the other day with my father um, about car shows and things, and and what's being canceled, and what's not being canceled. And uh, one of the things that we're talking about is, you know, if it doesn't get canceled and then something happens and, you know, your car event winds up being the, you know, the, the, the Petri dish, the (laughs) the flashpoint of an event, then guess what? Your car event is now canceled for life. Yeah. We can miss, we can miss one year or maybe we can miss, you know, the rest of its existence. So it's kind of a, we, we have the same philosophical discussions in all circles, unfortunately. Right. Uh, just a weird, weird time we're in and not something we want to talk about too much here, but certainly, certainly, certainly a thing. Right. So, Andrew, do you have any more questions for, for Patrick before we move on? Because. Uh... No, I, I don't think so. That was um, that pretty much. Yeah, that covered my scale question. And I was going to ask about, you know, we call these things diecast, but really a lot of them aren't diecast anymore. They're they're resin, but. It all got answered, so that's I'm cool. comfortable using diecast as a catch-all term. Uh, you know, it's Xerox, yeah. it's Kleenex, it's diecast. Yeah, and again, as as scale car hobbyists, we've always had plastic models, slot cars, RC cars, or diecast cars. Those are your four categories. <laughs> so it's if it's if it's in that diecast car category, so. But anyway, so they can find you at modelcitizendiecast.com. Modelcitizendiecast.com, where if you are interested in finding us at an event, uh, sorry to our listeners around the country, but we're pretty much exclusively West Coast on that. Uh, We do keep an updated events page on the website. Uh, I also am now producing a Diecast Cars and Coffee. Uh, We had our first run at that uh, this past March, right before everything shut down. Hopefully we'll be able to do that again next Next year um and you can find model citizen on instagram facebook twitter all all the places not tiktok yet though because i'm you know a, an adult yeah well i don't think a lot of our <laughs> listeners have tiktoks either so don't worry about it what's uh what's diecast cars and coffee what's that uh, uh, so uh, again long story but i'll give you the short version uh i have a a pal in the model collecting and dealing world who it's model dealing is also a side business for him. He is the CEO of a, of an online car finding service. And he was, he had been (laughs) pestering me for a couple of years at the Porsche lit and toy show about starting some kind of, uh, a, a collector's 
we don't like the term swap meet because it implies kind of a low end flea markety thing, but a, a gathering of diecast enthusiasts. And I said, well, I mean, there's cars and coffee. Why don't we just scale it down? So the time was right. And we launched diecast cars and coffee uh, in conjunction with Porsche weekend here in LA at the end of February, beginning of March. So uh, there's a website for that. It's diecastcarsandcoffee.com. I haven't updated it in quite a while but i will at some point uh if anybody's interested in that that'll probably be another la and maybe uh san francisco event going forward we shall see cool. Very excellent cool. so we've covered all places to find you uh if anybody's interested in buying anything from patrick this is uh certainly a, a strong endorsement on, on our end because he's a good guy and a good guy to do business with so i appreciate that you know there are as I said earlier, there are 8 billion places online where you can buy model cars. Um, I am a firm believer that the only way to retain business is through exquisite customer service. And I hope that that is what I can offer to anyone who's interested in checking us out. Excellent. Cool. And I know I will right, be Brad. buying things from you next time. I need a 143rd or larger scale car. And I'll right be buying on. my 164th from Jeff. <laughs> I like that arrangement. I, I can get behind that. Yep. Uh, right. So anyway, Andrew, where can they find you online? Well, you can find Auto Off Topic Podcast on Facebook as Auto Off Topic Podcast. Auto Off Topic on Instagram. Me, Race and Anger on Instagram. And Brad, where can they find you? TSISS350 on Instagram. All right, cool. As always, keep cars analog and aim for the roses. Yeah.